Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. A New England town has decided to reinstate a school mascot that critics say is racist and offensive to Native Americans. Naming a team a skin color in 2020 is just ridiculous, really. On Next, from the New England News Collaborative, how Killingly, Connecticut ditched the mascot, then brought it back in what may be the first reversal of its kind. And cutting college football boosted one New England university, but adding it had a similar effect on a nearby college. It boosted enrollment significantly, and it made money for them, and uh, it's been, uh, from their perspective, it's been a godsend. Plus, living with a teenager with severe autism who's nonverbal. Sometimes he'll be upset about something and crying, and we have to figure out, is he sad? Does he have a stomach ache? Does he have a toothache? What is it about him? It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks so much for joining us. As of this taping, President Donald Trump's impeachment trial in the Senate is scheduled to start on Tuesday. And it looks like the trial will prove to be a big presidential campaign obstacle for Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and the other members of the Senate who are vying for the White House. That's because in the crucial days leading up to the first caucuses in Iowa and the primary in New Hampshire, Warren and her colleagues will likely be sitting as jurors on Capitol Hill instead of shaking hands, taking selfies, and making their case to voters. WBUR's Kimberly Atkins has the story. For Warren, the timing couldn't be worse. After rising to frontrunner status early in the campaign, in recent weeks she's seen her polling and fundraising numbers sink as her opponents have gained momentum. She needs things to go smoothly and right and well for her right now. That's Democratic strategist Steve McMahon, who has worked on a number of presidential campaigns. And an impeachment trial with many uncontrollable variables, including time away on the campaign trail and how much that will take comes at an important time where she doesn't really have as much margin of error as she had, say, four to six months ago. At a campaign stop in New Hampshire last month, Warren told reporters, there are some things that are more important than politics, and if we have impeachment proceedings going on, I will be there. But being there for Warren, as well as her Senate colleagues Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar, and Michael Bennett, will mean being there a lot. Members of the Senate are expected to be called six days a week for the duration of the trial. Unlike impeachment proceedings in the House, in which lawmakers question witnesses in sometimes fiery exchanges, the senators at the impeachment trial will sit silently during the proceedings. And just how long it will last remains uncertain. What is clear, says McMahon, is that it will give an advantage to candidates who are not senators, including frontrunners Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg. And I'm sure they're going to take full advantage of it. They'll be in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, perhaps for days and weeks, that their Senate colleagues can't match. 
The timing is critical, says Adrian Elrod, a Democratic strategist who worked on Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, particularly if the trial carries into February. You know, it's one thing to take yourself off the campaign trail for a couple weeks before the first caucus date. It's a totally different ballgame to have to be off the campaign trail during the most crucial month of the Democratic primaries. That's because the early primaries are about more than winning. They are about momentum. Matt Bennett, veteran Democratic strategist who worked on the campaigns of Michael Dukakis and Bill Clinton, says the early primary states of Iowa and New Hampshire are unique. There's a big expectation on the part of voters that they will speak to candidates personally. You hear people say, without any irony, I'll decide after I talk to them a couple of more times. You know, that's just not how people in California are going to decide who they're going to vote for. That's why Warren has not only been spending a lot of time in recent weeks in those early states, she's been fundraising to ensure that she has enough money to advertise heavily there. And she's tapping surrogates to stump for her while she's back in Washington. People like Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, who is popular among the progressives Warren is courting, as well as Warren's husband, Bruce Mann, and former HUD Secretary Julian Castro, who threw his support behind Warren when he ended his own presidential bid earlier this month. Here's Castro speaking at a Warren rally in New York last week, soon after he endorsed her. So many times when we would get out there and I'd be having a conversation with somebody and they'd be nodding their head in Des Moines or in uh, Davenport or somewhere in Iowa or in Manchester, New Hampshire, and I thought I had them sold on my candidacy, they'd say, you know, I really, really like you. I love what you're talking about, but you know, I'm, my first choice is Elizabeth Warren. Back in Washington, Warren won't have to stay mute when she's not in her juror chair, Elrod says. You know, there is political upside because all of these senators who get to participate in the impeachment trial, of course, they won't be asking questions, but they will have opportunities throughout the day and, of course, into the evening to get themselves on national television, to talk to reporters, to really play up the fact that they are defending American democracy as we know it. In that way, the senator candidates will have a position that others don't. But, Bennett says, it's not the same as being on the stump, particularly for Warren. Because somebody like Warren is good at doing these retail events, anything keeping her from doing them uh, is harmful. Until the trial begins, expect Warren to be out on the campaign trail meeting with voters while she still can. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Kimberly Atkins. A school board in Killingly, Connecticut, has decided to reinstate a mascot that's offensive to some Native Americans. Killingly High School sports teams will once again be known as Redmen, despite a recent effort to ditch the name. This may be the first reversal of its kind in the U.S. In a bit, we'll talk with a Nipmuc tribal member who went to Killingly in the 90s. But first, Connecticut Public Radio's Frankie Graziano joins us to give us some backstory. Frankie, welcome to Next. Hi, Morgan. Frankie, we've heard about schools banning Native American mascots. It's rare, if not unheard of, that a school would reverse their decision to remove a Native American mascot, right? Yeah, and when you do something that's kind of rare like that, you start to make news. You start to make national news, maybe for the wrong reasons. 
Um, this has been covered by the Washington Post. It's been covered by the New York Times. I spoke to a guy named Paul Lucas who works for UniWatch. It's a sports blog. So he's been covering this kind of thing for 20 years. Um, he's been writing for 20 years, but he's been covering the, the Native American uh, mascot issue and debate for that long. He says he's never seen it before. He also says it's kind of indicative of the times and the politics and something like this can divide a town like it has divided killingly. Okay, yeah. So let's let's go back. Um, and let's start last summer. That's when the Nipmunk Tribal Nation in Northeast Connecticut recommended that the school board get rid of the Redmond mascot and name. What exactly did the Nipmuc tribe say to the school board? They say they denounce the name uh, in a letter they signed. They say even when the organization using said mascots believe they are in some way flattering or used as a means of honoring Native Americans. So just to just to uh, kind of pack that up, no matter what mascot they use, it doesn't honor our tribe that's indigenous to this area. And so the school board agrees and they they get rid of the name. And then there's the process of deciding what to replace it with. What do they decide? So the town um, starts to buzz a little bit because now you're coming up with that next name. And so there's this whole process. There's a different, a couple different rounds of voting. Throughout the process, the name that survives, it gets like 80% of the student vote. It gets a great majority is Red Hawks. They even have this new um, – uh, at the scores table that they have for the basketball games, they have this great uh, logo that's a red hawk, and and I think it costs like thousands of dollars hmm. to get this thing in. And the students overwhelmingly support it. It looks like the town's overwhelmingly ready to move on. But then around the fall, that's when it starts to pick up steam the other way, that now people are going to run for the school board and they're going to make the mascot issue uh, their platform. And that's when the opposition to uh, red hawks began. Why are they against the change? What are they saying? So people that are for the Redmen name uh, tend to be adults, alumni. I have talked to some students that are that that like the Redmen name, but it tends to be alumni that are outspoken about it. Um, adults in the town that are on the school board, they say that they've been honoring Native Americans for 80 years for having the Redmen name. They also say that if you get rid of this name, what happens next? So it was kind of like a fear message that uh, that I had seen. Yeah. Okay. So November happens five four. Let's reinstate the Redmond name. Um, I'm just wondering. So what so, actually happened first, though, Morgan, yeah. was in in December they were like, you know, we there was a five hour marathon meeting. A ton of media there, a lot of pressure on the school board. It's the first meeting of the new school board members that were elected, uh, particularly the new school board members that were saying, we're coming in here and we're going to restore that Redman name. The first thing they're able to do that night is get rid of Red Hawks. Now they don't have a mascot for about a month until the next school board meeting, and they play a championship game in football in December with no mascot name. Okay, so January meeting, 5-4 vote, restore the Redmond name. What are the the four people who voted against um, bringing back the name saying? So while all five uh, people that voted um, in favor of restoring the mascot were Republicans, there actually was one Republican that voted um, against restoring the name. 
Uh, the other three were Democrats, including Halloween Flexer, who's somebody I've been talking through uh, with throughout this process, who's been pretty enraged about the fact that now they're going back to the Redmen name. Students came to the meeting. We had an opportunity to engage the students. We had an opportunity to engage the Native Americans. People reached out to help us, and we refused to accept their help. Halloween now says that as a, as a Democratic member of the board, as somebody who's vehemently opposed to the uh, red men name. She says that she now wants the state to take a look at this and go ahead and ban mascot imagery that's offensive to Native Americans, something that Oregon has done, something that our neighbors in Maine have done. Okay, finally, let's talk about one other stakeholder in this, which is the students. Um, and I understand you caught up with a killingly athlete recently. Her name is Jessica Long, and she plays on the tennis team. And let's hear from Jessica. I have like three sweatshirts that are from freshman year that I used to wear all the time. And I refuse to wear them now because I don't want to be known as that. Jessica's even been uh, bullied, I guess you could say, for wearing a a red men's shirt. Um, She told me that she was uh, walking by in a sweater and somebody had driven by in a car and, and was yelling at her for wearing that. You can imagine now 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old kids having to play a game and focus on that. And now they're maybe wearing a jersey that is offensive. What if the kids decide, you know, I'm not going to wear the jersey if it says Redman on it. Can they still, can the athletes still play in those games? So, I mean, I talked to Jessica a little further on this. I mean, they're 14, 15, 16-year-old kids again. They probably wear the jersey if their coach told them to, but she really doesn't want to. I went to a Killingly game recently, and the JV jerseys had Redman on them, but um, the varsity jerseys, do have Killingly all on them. But uh, a majority of the jerseys in the town are going to say Killingly. So maybe it won't come down. Yes. But, um, you know, you go to the gym, as I recently did, you still see red men and red gals on the court. And that's something that wouldn't have been there had this whole debate happened with the restoration of the red men name. Frankie Graziano is a reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. Frankie, thank you so much. Thank you, Morgan. I appreciate it. Our next guest is a member of the Chibunagungamog Band of Nipmuc Indians. Barbie Gardner serves on their tribal council. She also went to Killingly High School, graduating in the early 90s. As we just heard, the Nipmuc denounced the use of the Redmond mascot in a letter to the board. Barbie joined us from outside Killingly High School. Barbie Gardner, welcome to Next. Hi, I'm happy to be here. So back when you went to Killingly High School in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, the mascot was Redmen. Did people talk about it then? No, they really didn't then. Did you, did you think about it, you know, as a student there? Did you have feelings about it? You know, um, I, I, honestly, I don't think I have the perspective then that I do now. But, you know, as we grow and, and times change, it, it has been something I think about. Yeah, so talk a little bit about those that progression and um, when you started having feelings about the mascot. Um, around the same time, uh, in the early 90s, I became more involved in the tribe and taking on more, more responsibility. Um, I met a lot more Native people and really gained um, a different perspective at that time. Um, and about, I want to say about five years ago, um, there was a lot of discussion regarding the Bartlett High School mascot, 
Um, and we were involved in, in talking with the school then to get their mascot changed. So and now, having gone through that process and having gone through this process, when you hear the name of this mascot at, at Killingly, what, what are the emotions and feelings that it brings up for you? Honestly, at this point, I mean, we were really happy um, when the last board let the Nipmuc people weigh in on the decision and ultimately left it up to us. And we really felt that was a fair um, and just thing for them to do. So when the new board took over and reversed it back to Redmen, we were really disappointed. Um, it just didn't make sense to us. What is your response um, to those board members who voted to reinstate the old mascot when they say, um, hey, actually, we're honoring Native Americans? Yeah, I I think we've made it really clear then, um, uh, back for the old board and this board, that you can't honor someone who just doesn't feel honored by that. Um, Naming a team a skin color in... In 2020 is just ridiculous, really. Do you do you have a sense of um, if all members of your particular tribe feel the same way? Um, I do have a feel for that. Um, I think the majority of us feel the way um, the way I do, and um, but I do know that there are some Native people who don't have a problem with it. But I think by and large. Um, we would like to see it changed. What would the people who don't have a problem with it say, or what have you heard them say? That by keeping it, we're not being completely erased from history. Um, But I think most of us agree that there's a better way to teach the students um, the history of the indigenous people that lived in this area. So now the board has reinstated the old mascot and name. What's next? Do you as an individual or as a tribe, have have plans to take action? As a tribe, we haven't discussed it. Um, our next meeting is on January 25th, and I know that is going to be a topic that we will be talking about. Um, personally, I think that it needs to be fought at the state level. Um, similarly to the way Maine just passed um, a law, um, I think it was in May, um, that's my personal feeling on it. That was Barbie Gardner, an alumna of Killingly High School and a member of the Chibunagungamog Band of Nipmuc Indians. After the break, one family's experience living with a child with severe autism and the inventions that could help. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. In homes where a family member has severe autism, day-to-day tasks inside and outside the house can be challenging. And as Patrick Scahill of Connecticut Public Radio reports, one family is trying to solve some of those challenges by working with engineering students from the University of Connecticut 
who recently presented some of their ideas at a science fair. Darlene Boré says every person with autism is unique. My son is 18, he has severe autism, and he's nonverbal. Boré lives with her son, Ben, and she says for parents of children with severe autism, talking about the challenges of daily living can sometimes be hard. Because it's very vulnerable to discuss some of these topics. Our type of autism is messy, it's sometimes dangerous. Ben is over 6 feet tall and weighs 250 pounds. Boré says he can be impulsive around food. If he gets into the refrigerator unsupervised, he might break glass or put too much food into his mouth and choke. And child locks can't keep him safe. Right now we have a titanium bike lock, so every time we open the refrigerator, uh, we have to undo the bike lock. And so that uh, you can't imagine how time-consuming that is, or maybe a younger member of our family will leave it open. Many families are living with someone identified as having autism spectrum disorder. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about 1 in 59 children in the United States. Boré says the day-to-day challenges of caring for people with a spectrum of complicated needs can sometimes make families feel hopeless. But today, Boré is hopeful. She winds her way through a room packed with poster presentations. It's got a science fair feel. Dozens of future engineers and computer scientists packed together explaining designs for new products for people with autism. Freshman engineering majors Andrew Turow and Jackson Chard share their team's thoughts on a better fridge lock with Boré. And this would screw into the door of the refrigerator and this would screw into the side. And so it'd be a spring-loaded dowel, and you would just pull it out. So the dowel is something, what's going to prevent the person with autism from taking the dowel out? The, the safety lock on the bottom. It would be keypad locked, so... The projects are a collaboration between UConn's Service Learning Program and the School of Engineering. Dan Berkey, an associate dean at UConn, says the idea is to bring elegant engineering to underserved consumers. When you look at how products are designed and marketed, right, very often they are not designed or marketed with, with certain you know, vulnerable demographics in mind. You know, they really are targeted towards what we consider the average consumer. Also on display is an app which helps caregivers find family restrooms when they're traveling. And a shower and tub guard that would prevent bathroom overflows by connecting to a timer on an iPad. And while many of the projects are ideas, not full-blown prototypes, Berkey says the time is right for engineers to help serve niche markets. Looking at, you know, what are the needs and how can I bring my expertise and my creativity and my passion to bear on that. Darlene Boré says transforming those ideas into real solutions gives people like her son Ben more independence and more choice and control. It's not about containing them. It's about understanding their experience and respecting that and making life easier for them. Sometimes all that takes is a design change. Harnessing technology to assist people, especially those, Boré says, who are most in need of help. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. Darlene Boré, who you just heard in the last story, is here now in the studio. She's joining us to talk more about her experience with her son, Ben. Darlene, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Great to be here. So in Patrick's story, you say it's not about containing people with severe autism. It's about understanding their experiences and making life easier for them. And we heard about how uh, technological inventions can assist in this way. I'm wondering if you can talk about this process of understanding as a parent and what are some concrete ways you've tried to get in Ben's shoes? That's a great question. Because Ben can't talk, we're often trying to 
We try to figure out what he needs. Sometimes he'll be upset about something and crying, and we have to figure out, is he sad? Does he have a stomach ache? Does he have a toothache? What is it about him? Um, it's only in the last couple of years he started isolating a finger and pointing to things that hurt. And that was great. We were thrilled with that. Yeah. You've been an advocate for families who have children with severe autism and uh, talked about the transition to adulthood. Can you talk about some of the biggest concerns and hopes that you have for Ben as he's going through this transition himself? Right. At, at 18, you continue to work on transition skills. And so what we had to do is say, okay, what will he be transitioning to? And so I started visiting group homes and day programs just to kind of get a sense of what skills he needed. And what I found was that the day programs and group homes that were established, you know, probably half a century ago really haven't changed that much. So although there's much more autism, the group homes and the day programs haven't changed to accommodate that. And so when you talk to care providers, they don't know anything about autism. They don't know how to handle the behaviors or the sensory challenges. And that's the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is the people that are going to be working with kids like Ben in the future have no idea what autism is. In fact, DDS, with the Department of Developmental Services. Here in Connecticut. That's right. Yeah. Um, they provide training for the staff that works with people with disabilities, all disabilities. Um, they the only training that they provide for people with autism to train the staff about autism is restraint holds. So does that mean when your family has to make a decision that your decision is between inadequate programming and having Ben stay at home? That's right. So at 21, if we can't find a, a program for him, he would have to stay home, which also means a parent quitting their job because he can't stay home alone. So that's two people unemployed. Wow. Do you, do you have any advice um, for families with younger children with autism having, having gone through that portion of the process already? I think I had no idea how much I'd have to get involved with legislators because you really have to make people understand what it takes to take care of a child with severe autism, what their needs are, what their challenges are, what you're doing to help them so that that, that can be continued you know, throughout life. Do you feel like your involvement with legislators has paid off? Have you seen some improvements? I think we're starting conversations. This is brand new. So I think there's a, a lot of um, changes that need to happen, and not just in Connecticut, all over. And people are just starting to come to terms with that. It's really going to be an epidemic on our social service system. I want to end just with talking about one of your favorite memories uh, with Ben to date, because I think it can be natural kind of to focus on the challenges. But do, do you have a favorite memory? This is sort of a bittersweet okay. <laughs> event that happened, a memory that happened. Um, and along the lines of what we first started talking about with how we connect with Ben, he loves music, loves music. So he ends up just wowing us with his taste in music. He got us the entire family into Hamilton after playing the Hamilton hmm. soundtrack a quadrillion times. And one night, he was having a lot of trouble sleeping, and he was crying and crying and waking up in the middle of the night and going back to sleep and waking up again and just really upset. And I tried to ask him, are you in pain? How can I help you? What can I do? And he just was inconsolable. He was better in the morning. 
and I remember asking him, what, what could I do for you? What was wrong last night? And he grabbed his iPad and he um, was pressing some, pressing it. And all of a sudden, uh, REM song came up, Everybody Hurts. And it, if you listen to the lyrics, it goes um, something like, when your day is long and the night is yours alone, when you think you've had enough of this life, well, hang on. And it just made me really understand being taught all day long and then being told, try again, try again. It must really wear on him. And he was just having this moment of depression. And I, I'm glad he found a way to tell me that. Yeah, and through music. Mm-hmm. Darlene, thank you so much for talking and, and sharing your experience with us. We really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me. Everybody hurts sometimes. Sometimes everything is wrong. Every year, at least 30,000 people are diagnosed with Lyme disease. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Researchers haven't figured out how to reduce the number of people infected with Lyme or other tick-borne illnesses, but a new study suggests that a vaccine for mice might finally decrease infection rates. WBUR's Angus Chen reports. Researchers wanted to vaccinate mice against Lyme disease, so they put the vaccine in a coating around the pet kibble. Yeah, it looks just very much like rodent chow. That's Kirby Stafford. He's an entomologist with the state of Connecticut and the lead author on the study. For the experiment, he placed little plastic boxes around 21 homes in Reading, Connecticut. These rodent-sized houses were filled with piles of the kibble vaccine, sort of like a mouse restaurant. When the woodland creatures go inside, they eat the kibble, and then they gain immunity against Borrelia burgdorferi, the bacteria that cause Lyme disease. Roughly half of all ticks that carry Borrelia get it when they bite an infected mouse. So Stafford says the vaccine should reduce the number of mice with the bacteria. And that should prevent ticks from picking up the pathogen. And then ultimately turn around and infect you. Stafford says he saw infection rates in mice decrease 13-fold around the houses where he tested the vaccine after two years. But that may not mean that human rates of infection will go down too. Felicia Keesing studies disease ecology at Bard College. She didn't work on this study. She says researchers have already managed to reduce tick populations using other methods— but that didn't reduce the number of people who get Lyme disease. So I love what they're trying to do, but it would still leave a big gap, which is to find out if this actually affects the cases of Lyme disease in the homes that they're treating. Kiesing says knowing if the kibble vaccine really can draw down human infection rates will take a much larger and more expensive study. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Angus Chen. Coming up, how college football programs are impacting two Massachusetts schools, Plus, a historic bakery in Vermont gets a makeover and sourdough starter from Ukraine. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. The college football season is officially over. LSU, Louisiana State University, won the national championship on Monday, if you didn't know already. Football has a huge impact on big-time universities, the kinds of teams that make it to these championship games. But for the other colleges, big and small, the impact can still be felt when programs are added or cut. 
Bill Pennington is a sports reporter for The New York Times. He recently wrote an article about two New England colleges, one that added football and another that dropped its program, and how both schools got a boost. Bill Pennington, welcome to Next. Thanks. Happy to be on. So let's start with this school that added football, Anna Maria College. It's a private Catholic school just outside of Worcester in central Massachusetts. Can you tell us, what was the school's situation before they added the football program? Well, the school it was once an all-girls school, and in the uh, early 70s, like a lot of small uh, colleges in, in New England, um, it went co-ed. Um, didn't have the highest uh, profile, or not as high a profile as it wanted, and and other institutions like it had uh, had instituted football programs. This is a phenomenon that's been going on across the nation for a while, and so they did the same, and it boosted enrollment significantly, and it made money for them, and uh, it's been uh, from their perspective, it's been a godsend. It's been a very productive thing to do. So on top of um, increasing enrollment since they added the football program in 2009, it's also increased student diversity. Um, there's more men now, more people of color enrolling there. Is that, is that something that the school also attributes to adding the football program? Yeah, absolutely. One of the, I actually wrote a story 15 years ago about schools like this that were adding football, and a lot of it was for uh, balancing the gender in their uh, enrollment. And you keep in mind, most of these schools are are small schools, so they're not the athletic scholarships are not permitted. So there isn't a great deal of cost uh, to add these uh, football players. But it does, let's say, attract a hundred men right right off the bat. So you, you have a football roster of about a hundred. So if you're a school like Anna Maria, where your your enrollment is around eight hundred, a uh, hundred male who are matriculating, that's a that's a pretty big boost. It also tends to attract other male applicants because. Uh, a lot of young men leaving high school want to go to a college that has a football team. I mean, so there's a sort of dual effect there. And that's that's definitely one of the big reasons these schools are adding uh, football programs. It's pretty remarkable. Anna Maria saw just in 10 years they went from 70% female to 50-50. Yeah, and as you said, the Anna Maria team is out 50% African-American. So as you, said, as you mentioned, it, it has an impact on diversity, makes it easier to attract other students of color. I want to get to the school that lost football or eliminated football in just a second, but um, you interviewed a football player named Kevin Supan uh, for this article, and he kind of encapsulates why this was a good move for Anna Maria. Can you can you talk about um, his experience? Yeah, he's from uh, Kevin is from Monroe, Connecticut, and he played football. He's a, he's a big guy; he's uh, almost three hundred pounds, and he was a good football player, but not good enough to go on to play, uh, you know, to Division One level. And as his high school years were dwindling down, he realized, well, geez, I'm not going to get to play football anymore. And he was one of these guys that played since he was a, you know, a youth. Uh, and he was kind of disheartened that, that this is the way it was. And uh, then he got an email from the head coach, at Anna Maria, Dan Mulroney, and it was like, wow, you know, now I've got a, I've got a chance to uh, fix this solution. I'll get to keep playing. And he went up and fell in love with the campus. And he thought, well, you know, this is uh, great. I'll get to keep playing football and I'll get an education, something he was not planning on getting. Uh, he he said to me, uh, you know, geez, if it wasn't for Anna Maria football, I'd be back home in Moreau mowing lawns because that was his summer job and that's what he expected to do when he got out of high school. Now he's going to have a career in fire sciences. He expects to graduate. His uh, grades have improved significantly. And for, for him, this has been all, you know, a win-win situation all the way around. 
Wow. Okay. So in 2009, which was the same year Anna Maria opened its football program, Northeastern University in Boston did the exact opposite and eliminated theirs. Um, what was the state of, of this school um, and its football program right before it was uh, eliminated? They'd played football for 74 years at Northeastern, and while they had some successful teams, they they never really, you know, made a big impact in, in the college football community or really in the, the Boston scene. Um, as I said, they had some good teams. It was it, was, it mattered to the university, but by 2009, um, they were drawing not very big crowds, roughly between 1,000 and 1,500 people. And they were a Division One school, so they had uh, 50 to 60 kids on scholarship. Um, their coaching salaries are obviously more than they would be in a small school. So the, you know, the football program was maybe as much as four, four and a half million dollars. And they just felt the the institution did that the, that they weren't going anywhere with this sport, and they were having an institution wide uh, review of every program to say, okay, we're you know we've got to only put our money into those that we think we can uh, really excel at and sustain a certain amount of achievement. So some academic programs around the way, various things, you know, got cut. And one of the things that got cut was football, which was a controversial thing at the time, um, especially among the football alumni or some other alums who liked the fact that they had football, but that was their choice at the time, roughly just a couple months after Anna Maria added its program. And, And the results were hugely successful, right? Yeah, as it happens, Northeastern's had this meteoric uh, rise. Um, uh, applications have more than doubled. Uh, research funding has almost tripled. And very significantly in the U.S. News and World Rankings, uh, which is an influential ranking of colleges and universities, their ranking went from 96 in, among national universities to 40, which is a big deal in that academic community. Now, I don't think anybody there, no one I talked to said, oh, well, we... All of this prosperity has happened because we dropped football. Um, obviously, there's a lot of other factors that went into that, but it's interesting that dropping football did not hurt them in any way. You know, I walked around on that campus for days. I talked to people. I talked to various constituencies. I really didn't have anybody tell me, other than some you know, former players for the team, that they were upset with this decision. Right. So you had there were some people who were mad um, and questioned how this could be a great university without a football program. But you also talk about how the Northeastern president was contacted by other college presidents who wanted to know, how'd you do this? And yeah. what what did he I tell think, them? Yeah, well, I, he told them the process by which he did it, and they were, very, they were pretty methodical. Um, I think also it's likely that the other presidents at some of those institutions, you know, might like to drop football themselves. Um, but it's very hard at some schools, and they feel the the blowback would be too great. Could somebody possibly conclude that it makes sense for a school that's wildly successful in football, um, but but may and and maybe it makes sense for smaller schools too to have a football program. But those schools that are in the middle that are large but just don't have that much of a following, it's it's really doesn't pay off. Yeah, I'm sure there's any number of schools that wish that they. You know, if they could wave a magic wand and drop their football programs uh, without it being uh, highly controversial and having to answer to a large constituency of alumni, they would do it. But uh, it doesn't really work that way. You know, that, that it's uh, as Peter Roby says in the article. He says, you know, it's kind of the king of the campus on a lot of places. It's hard to uh, 
cut ties with a sport that's been around that long and has a history. Okay, so we've talked about Anna Maria and Northeastern and their different situations. I'm wondering, put together, what, what's the overall takeaway for you? That there's a dichotomy of thought about this sport uh, in America, and what's going on in colleges um, is indicative of that. You know, some people think of football as in decline and are, are happy about that and think the sport is uh, too dangerous. Um, and some people think it's uh, you know embodies all kinds of things, uh, good things that for an institution and you know the camaraderie and the teamwork and what it, and the kind of morale it brings to a campus. And I don't uh, I don't think that 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 dichotomy of thought is going away either. I think we'll just see more of the same. Is it a regional dichotomy of thought? Do you think like is is football well? I guess it's fair to say that football has a bigger presence in the South and the Midwest where it's king. What about the Northeast? I think it's I think it's fair to say. I mean, thirty nine percent of the uh, of the the football programs added, college football programs added, were in four states: Michigan, Florida, Texas, and I think uh, Georgia. But it is also true that every region is represented. Uh, you know, Franklin Pierce in New Hampshire is adding a program, or has added a program. University of New England in Maine is adding a program. Uh, Anna Maria did so. So did other schools in New England. Programs are being added uh, at a higher rate, much higher rate than than being dropped. Um, now, you know that's not the same as to say that you know high school participation in football is dropping in in more areas uh, and and more so in the Northeast, let's say, in the Mid Atlantic states than in the Southeast. So it's playing out on, on a variety of different levels. But I don't think it's completely accurate to say that it's totally regional because, as I said, these football programs are popping up at Anna Maria outside Worcester and in in southern New Hampshire and Franklin Pierce, too. You know, so it's not just something that's going on in Florida and Texas. Bill Pennington is a sports reporter for The New York Times. Bill, thank you so much for sharing your reporting. Thanks. My pleasure. We wanted to hear from someone firsthand who benefited from the football program at Anna Maria College. Dylan DiOrio plays inside linebacker and is captain of the team. He says when he first stepped onto campus as a football recruit, he knew this was something he wanted to be a part of. Right when I stepped foot on campus, Coach Mulrooney knew my name, shook my hand, knew everything about the recruits personally. And you know, out of the 10 schools I went to, I had literally never seen anything like this before. DiOrio grew up in Grafton. It's a town outside of Worcester, Massachusetts. And he says Anna Maria's increase in diversity has made a difference to him. I grew up with, with one mindset. And the way that you're able to grow and expand and learn more about people is, is by meeting new people. And I've met kids from California, Philadelphia, Florida, um, all walks of life, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. Uh, what what truly has kind of meant the most to me is that I get to know these kids and we all come together as one and it stops becoming a kid from Florida and a kid from Grafton, Massachusetts. And it's kids that are together on the same campus that are enjoying themselves and, and doing what they want to do. And I feel like it's opened me up to a, a lot of different avenues and cultures and and ways to really expand and, and grow as an individual. Diorio is a junior at Anna Maria College.
In the early 1900s, there was a bakery at the center of a strong labor movement in Vermont. The bakery first turned out handmade bread in 1913, but then it went out of business for decades. Recently, though, it was rebuilt as part of a larger renovation project in town. The challenge then was to find a skilled baker who wanted to lease it and give the place new life. As Vermont Public Radio's John Dillon reports, the search ended with a Vermonter living in Ukraine. Good to be careful. I got long tools here. Jim Haas pivots quickly like a basketball player lining up a shot as he slides a long-handled paddle in and out of the massive wood-fired oven. He eases two large round loaves of dark bread onto a table and wraps them with his knuckles. Yeah, that one's ready. Beautiful. I just love these breads, I gotta tell you. Haas says they're done when a hard wrap makes the bread resonate like a block of wood. But if it's got that wood sound to it, right? I you see I hit it with my knuckle? And I, I can see that these are, these are red. The thick loaves are made of 100% rye flour. It's a classic bread of northern Germany and eastern Europe and Ukraine. There's sourdough, there's no yeast. Oh yeah, these are, yeah, this is, this is whole grain, organic rye flour, uh, sea salt and water. Barry water. Making these breads is a three-day process of starting the sourdough, letting the dough cool, then rise, forming the loaves, and letting them rise again before baking. So many people are so fascinated by this. I say, fellas, but we're not inventing, reinventing the wheel here. We're doing kind of, you know, essentially the same that's been done for 6,000 years. Yeah, so a lot of people are appeal, find that appealing. I'm happy about that. Haas is from Danby, but he had learned Russian in college and was living in Ukraine in the early 90s, working at a trading company. He met his wife, Larissa, there. They later started the bakery business, but found they had to reestablish the taste for these traditional handmade breads. It was also a hard sell at first, to try to convince somebody who's grown up on industrial bread that there's, a, let's say, a, what could be a, a more interesting alternative. You know, with what you saw, that nice hard crust... You know, back in Ukraine, it was a long period where people thought that was just old bread. They say, are you selling this? It's hard as a rock. I said, well, you've got to cut it open. You know, so uh, <laughs> my wife and I went through a long process of kind of educating people about this. But the business took off, and soon Haas was working 18-hour days, baking bread in a village outside the capital, then delivering it to customers in Kiev. Along the way, he witnessed two decades of social upheaval in this adopted country, including months-long demonstrations against Russian-backed leaders. The protests are known by the name of the central square in Kiev, called the Maidan. I plan to go there for a year, and one year turned into 28. You know, yeah. So, and my wife and I, we just, uh, we've been married now 27 years. We saw the first Maidan in 2004, and we saw the second Maidan, which was very severe and very violent, in, in, in 13 and 14. At the same time, uh, we managed to uh, launch uh, Ukraine's first uh, commercial wood-fired bakery. Finding Jim and Larissa was incredible. It was like a gift. That's Carolyn Shapiro, a member of the Barry Historical Society and lead organizer of the bakery project. She's raised funds for the venture, applied for grants and wrangled contractors. She also had to find a baker who could serve the society's educational mission. So we knew that we wanted both of those to happen. 
And Jim and Larissa had that experience of setting up the bakery and has also trained bakers. So there was an aspect of education that they also were familiar with. So that's what we put out, was what we were looking for. Some serious serendipity started Haas on his journey back home. The Historical Society had enlisted Vermont bakers to help in their search for a new Barry Baker. The Vermonters put a notice on a Bakery Guild newsletter that Haas, who had wanted to move back to the U.S., monitored in Kiev. Those letters from, uh, uh, from the listserv of Baker's Guild were coming out in such numbers, after a while I just started deleting them. I said, I just don't have any chance to read these. Uh, but that one I just kind of paused with and scrolled, and then Vermont just jumped out at me like, like uh, high beams of a car, you know? <laughs> so yeah, here we are standing here next to this nice hot oven. <clears throat> Yeah, Rick. Okay, that'll be fine. You got it. Okay, 14 dozen. You got it. Okay, Rick. We'll see you tomorrow. And the community is responding. During the interview, Haas gets an order for 14 dozen Italian dinner rolls from the Mutua Society, a Barry organization founded in 1906 as a mutual aid society for Italian immigrants. Now it's known mainly for its excellent dinners. The rolls are named after Battista Fumagalli, one of the original bakers who worked here. Now, he made the Italian rolls, and it, I was so, you know, I was a little intimidated at first, I said, because these guys know their rolls, and, and they want, you know, they know what they want, so the first couple of deliveries over there, I was a little intimidated by it. And then uh, the word got back, some of the old-timers there that remember his rolls. He said, these are just as good, and I was, so we... We call them Fumagalli Italian rolls. <laughs> Larissa, Haas's partner, points out that the breads made here are international in another way, too. The starter for the sourdoughs came from Ukraine's Carpathian Mountains. Uh, Jim uh, went to the mountains, took the spring water and the flour, mixed it up, and started the sour right in the, in the very top of the mountain. So we brought it with us here, and we baked with it. So it has a little Ukrainian soul in every loaf. The Haas's plan to give back to the community with workshops and a mentor program for young people who want to learn the bread-making trade. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is the executive editor. Our executive producer is Katie Tolarski. We had help this week from Frankie Graziano and Tyler Alderson. Music this week is by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, Karen Connolly, Binger, and Francesca Blanchard. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.